July 30th, 1975. Not a cloud in the sky in Pontiac, Michigan. Wildlife called peacefully across the lakes until a plane hummed over the horizon, startling them. The craft flew so low, it nearly skimmed the surface of the Great Lakes. Inside were three men, all dressed for business, all armed with guns, badges, and the same stern look on their faces as they stared at the man across from them. The handcuffed man returned their stare, trying to appear apathetic. He looked rather unassuming in a dark polo and slacks, yet his hand shook like a man in serious trouble. He told the federal officers his wife was waiting for him at home. He'd promised to cook her steaks. She'd worry if they took too long. One agent replied, I'm sorry to say, but your wife may be dining alone. The other agent pulled the door of the plane open. They forced the unassuming man towards the edge and taunted him, saying, you've got to love that view. Before he could respond, one of the agents shoved the man. He plummeted through the air toward Lake Michigan, landing with an unforgettable splash. The former captive would never be seen again. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our second episode on Jimmy Hoffa, the former president of the Teamsters Labor Union who disappeared on July 30th, 1975. Throughout his career, Jimmy roped the union into illicit business ventures and gave money to the mob. Combine his role as a union leader with his high-up mob connections, and the U.S. government wanted him gone. Last time, we covered his rivalry with Senator Bobby Kennedy and Hoffa's schemes to bribe President Nixon to release him from prison. But not long after he got out, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared off the face of Detroit. Today, we'll look at the conspiracy theories surrounding Hoffa's disappearance. First off, conspiracy theory number one. Jimmy Hoffa was killed by federal agents who wanted to ensure Frank Fitzsimmons maintained the role of Teamster president. Conspiracy theory number two. Jimmy Hoffa was murdered by serial killer and mafia hitman Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. At the time, Kuklinski was known for making people disappear. And conspiracy theory number three. Jimmy was killed by his longtime friend and associate, Frank the Irishman Sheeran, who was sent by Mafia Don Russell Bufalino to keep Jimmy quiet. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. To this day, no one has been convicted for Jimmy Hoffa's mysterious disappearance in 1975. Over the years, the FBI narrowed their search to nine suspects, all of whom were involved with either the Teamsters or the Mafia. Yet each of them pled the fifth when brought before a grand jury. The lack of evidence makes the death of Jimmy Hoffa one of the most notorious cold cases in history. And it doesn't help that his body was never found. Not for lack of trying. Tips on Jimmy Hoffa's missing corpse led the FBI on a wild goose chase across the country. Mafia hitman Donald Tony the Greek Francos claimed that New Jersey Mafia dismembered Jimmy and buried him in the end zone of Giant Stadium. Anonymous tips suggested that Tony Pro and his associate, Salvatore Bregulio, murdered Jimmy and ground him into pieces. Then they scattered him in the Florida Everglades. But there was one eyewitness testimony that led to new suspects, not the mafia nor the Teamsters, the federal government. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Jimmy was killed by federal agents, perhaps on orders from a former president. The theory starts with a man named Joseph Franco. 
Franco was a former aide and strong arm for the Teamsters for over 30 years. He was closely tied to the mafia, but he also worked intimately with Jimmy Hoffa. Franco was called to testify before the grand jury twice regarding Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. Franco claimed he was worried about exposing the truth. He didn't want anyone to come after him, so he never told the jury what he saw and stayed silent about what he witnessed that July afternoon. Until 1987, when Franco published his book, Hoffa's Man. Franco's story went something like this. On the day of Jimmy's disappearance, Franco happened to be at the same shopping center as the Matches Red Fox restaurant, where Jimmy was set to meet the two Tonys. Franco said he was there on personal business. It's unclear if that meant Franco was there for the meeting or it was completely unrelated. Leaving the strip mall, Franco noticed Jimmy standing by his green Pontiac in the parking lot. By Franco's estimation, Jimmy had probably just phoned his wife and was headed back to the car. Franco didn't have time to approach before a black Ford LTD pulled up beside Jimmy. According to Franco, two federal marshals or federal agents stepped out of the vehicle and flashed their badges. Jimmy talked to them for a moment and then climbed into the Ford's back seat without protest. The car exited the lot down Telegraph Road around 2.45 p.m. Franco hopped in his own car and pursued them to the small Pontiac Oakland Airport. This was a public-use airport that housed private planes. But Franco didn't have clearance to follow the Ford inside the gates of the airfield. Franco waited and watched for a while. It's not clear how long. Could have been 10 minutes, maybe a couple of hours. But Franco insists the Ford LTD never exited back onto the main road. He says the only way Jimmy could have left the airport was by plane. And since Jimmy was never seen again, Franco insists the feds were responsible for his disappearance. In fact, he believes government agents may have pushed Jimmy out of the plane over the Great Lakes. After a decade-long rivalry with the federal government, it's not hard to see why they may have wanted Jimmy out of the picture. And at the time of his disappearance, Jimmy was threatening to expose the shady practices of current Teamster president, Frank Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons allowed the mafia to withdraw vast sums of money from the union's pension accounts. At the same time, Fitz was making regular contributions to Richard Nixon's campaign. Now, Hoffa had done a similar thing, allowing mafiosos to borrow money from the Teamsters to build casinos. That's how he wound up in jail. And he'd been involved with donations to Nixon to get back out of jail. But Fitzsimmons had successfully kept his mob ties a secret. This grew more complicated because Nixon and Fitzsimmons were publicly aligned as well. The two appeared on television together on more than one occasion. Well, their relationship wasn't a secret. If Fitz's ties to the mob came out, it could be detrimental to Nixon's career, perhaps even send him to jail. But there are a few holes here like the fact that Franco waited until 1987 to publish his account. 
and Jimmy's son, James P. Hoffa, publicly denied the claims in Franco's books and said that if Franco was truly a witness, then he should have come forward 12 years prior. Franco did admit that he was afraid of challenging the feds at the time. He said he was worried he'd get whacked or sent to prison. And in 1987, Franco said he'd take a lie detector test if he was granted federal immunity. He also said he could identify one of the federal agents he saw that day if a photo was provided. Franco also defended his argument by hinting that other great leaders of this period may have been assassinated by the government. We've covered a few of these previously, but conspiracy theories suggest that the CIA hired Lee Harvey Oswald to kill John F. Kennedy. And Bobby Kennedy's assassin was allegedly a victim of government mind control. Even Martin Luther King Jr. was thought to be assassinated by the FBI. Still, the FBI wrote off Franco's claims since they came out so many years after Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. They never searched the Great Lakes for Jimmy's body, probably because they felt the accusations were unsubstantiated or because they were directly involved in the disappearance. Still, Franco never could provide proof of what he saw that day. As far as we can tell, he never took a lie detector test, nor did he get to validate his theories with photos of former agents. Which leads us to the biggest plot hole in Franco's theory. Nixon had already resigned by 1975 when Jimmy went missing. He resigned in 1974, after the disgrace of Watergate. So why would Nixon care about Jimmy exposing his ties to the mob at that point? And how would he have sway over federal agents? Let me remind you, Nixon used former CIA and FBI agents in the Watergate scandal. So it's possible he also used former agents to threaten or kill Jimmy Hoffa. President Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, which meant he couldn't be indicted over the scandal. But if word got out that he received dirty money from the mob via Fitzsimmons and used that to fund Watergate, that could have led to an even larger mess. Did Nixon have the motive? Sure. But the resources? Probably not. It seems like Franco's story was nothing more than a publicity stunt. So on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being very likely and 1 being very unlikely, I'd give this theory a 2 out of 10. I'd give it a 3. The sticking point for me is the connection to Nixon and Watergate. We know what Nixon was capable of and how far he'd go to get what he wanted. I wouldn't put it past him to attempt to have Hoffa eliminated to save his own skin. That said, there were far more bloodthirsty individuals with motive to put a hit on Jimmy Hoffa, including a known serial killer. Coming up next, the infamous serial killer Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. Now, back to the story. According to his friend and fellow teamster, Joseph Franco, Jimmy Hoffa was lured into a vehicle by federal agents in 1975. Franco claims he tailed the agents to a private airfield where he believes Jimmy was put on a plane, then dropped into the Great Lakes, never to be seen again. But there's little evidence to suggest this was true. 
And President Nixon, the only government figure with a motive to kill Jimmy, had already resigned from office. But our second theory takes a more sinister turn. In July 1975, Jimmy Hoffa was meeting mafiosos Tony Pro and Tony Jack at the Matches Red Fox restaurant. Jimmy and Tony Pro had been fighting since prison, and the meeting was to settle their differences. Jimmy needed Tony Pro's support if he was going to be reelected as Teamsters Union president. Officially, the duo never showed, and Jimmy got into another vehicle around 2.45 p.m., but that vehicle may have held both Tony's as well as their hitman. Which brings us to theory number two, notorious serial killer and mafia hitman Richard the Iceman Kuklinski killed Jimmy Hoffa. Kuklinski was a monstrous man. He was six foot five and weighed 300 pounds. He had no distinct way of killing his victims. He was careful to never use the same weapon twice. His tools ranged from handguns and grenades to ice picks, chainsaws, hunting knives, and crowbars. He even admitted to shooting a motorist with a crossbow just to try out the weapon. He says his most creative weapon was a nasal spray bottle filled with cyanide. His favorite victims? Loudmouths and those who angered him. But he had no problem killing at random. At 18, Kuklinski sold pornographic videos to the Gambino crime family. He built a friendship with mobster Roy DeMeo. DeMeo had Kuklinski help with small crimes at first, like petty theft. But Kuklinski told DeMeo that his dream job was to kill for a living. So one day, DeMeo pointed out a victim at random. A man was walking his dog down the streets of New York when Kuklinski shot him in the head without hesitation. After that, Kuklinski became the main hitman for multiple tri-state area crime families, including the Genovese family, which Tony Pro was a part of. The mafia named Kuklinski the Iceman because he would often store bodies in industrial-grade freezers, then dispose of them later. This made it harder for a time of death to be determined and harder for detectives to solve the crime. But Kuklinski also dismembered bodies, tossed them in lakes, or lit them on fire in a 55-gallon oil drum. Essentially, he knew how to cover up a dead body. As for how we know about this, Kuklinski happily bragged about his exploits to authors and psychologists. Over the years, he took credit for almost 200 different deaths. In the early 2000s, journalist Philip Carlo spent six weeks interviewing the Iceman in prison. Carlo published Kuklinski's stories in his book, The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, in 2006. Among Kuklinski's many violent confessions was the kidnap and murder of Jimmy Hoffa. By 1975, Kuklinski had been working as a hitman for East Coast Mafia families for almost 15 years. Yet, Kuklinski didn't know much about Jimmy Hoffa. The two had never met. In Carlo's book, The Iceman, Kuklinski says the order to kill Jimmy came from Tony P., 
who we can assume meant Tony Pro. Allegedly, Mafia Don Russell Bufalino had permitted Tony Pro to execute the hit, so Tony Pro offered Kuklinski $40,000 to do the job, or roughly $190,000 today. Kuklinski preferred to work alone, but agreed to work with a team for this specific hit. He could tell it was important. Kuklinski only referred to the others as Gabe, Sal, and Tommy, but they were likely fellow Mafia members Gabrielle and Salvatore Regulio and Thomas Andretta. According to Kuklinski, the four men and Tony Pro arrived in Detroit around mid-morning on July 30th, 1975, the day Jimmy went missing. Later that day, the men drove to the Matches Red Fox restaurant. Jimmy Hoffa was waiting outside when they arrived. Allegedly, Tony Pro got out of the car and chatted with Hoffa in the parking lot for a moment. Then he walked Hoffa back to the car. Tony Pro got in the front seat and Jimmy Hoffa got in the back. With a crowbar in his hand, Kuklinski waited for his signal. After a couple of miles, Tony Pro nodded and Kuklinski knocked Jimmy unconscious. Kuklinski then drew a hunting knife and positioned it at the base of Jimmy's skull. He thrust the knife directly into Jimmy Hoffa's brain. The group pulled over at a nearby rest stop and put Jimmy's corpse into a body bag. They then threw him into the trunk of the car. Tony Pro wanted to take Jimmy's body back to New Jersey so they could put some distance between the crime and the evidence. Kuklinski volunteered to drive the body back while the others took a bus home. Kuklinski arrived in New Jersey that night and went straight to a mob-owned junkyard in Newark. He put Jimmy's body in a 50-gallon drum and doused it with gasoline. Kuklinski says he welded the drum shut and burned it for 30 minutes before burying it in the junkyard. Later, Kuklinski heard that Sal Bregulio had been talking to the feds. It was just a rumor, but as a precaution, Kuklinski returned to the junkyard and dug up the drum. He placed the drum in the trunk of an old car and took the car to a junkyard. It was then smashed into a two-by-four-foot cube in a compressor. Kuklinski believes Jimmy's compacted remains were then sold with a scrap metal to Japan. The detail that Kuklinski used to describe Jimmy's murder was extremely chilling, and Kuklinski claimed to have known Jimmy's biggest rival, Tony Pro, since they were kids. But Kuklinski was known for exaggerating. Philip Carlo had 240 hours of audio recordings from Kuklinski. Many of his stories became more gruesome and twisted as the tapes went on. Former FBI agent Robert Garrity said that Kuklinski's story about Jimmy was the, quote, most embarrassing one to date, end quote. He dismissed the killer as a fantasist. And it didn't help that Kuklinski couldn't keep his stories consistent. The number of deaths he claimed responsibility for ranged between 30 and 200. Still, Officer Patrick Kane, who arrested Kuklinski in 1986, believed that Kuklinski was responsible for Jimmy Hoffa's death. He was quoted saying, Who is a more likely candidate to do this than him? Despite that, 
it wasn't until he was interviewed for Carlo's 2006 book that Kuklinski finally took credit for Jimmy's death. And he seems like the kind of man who loved to sound his own horn. Well, the fact that he waited so long to take credit for this famous murder is a bit suspicious. He'd had multiple interviews before Carlo, including some with HBO. What seals it for me is there's no evidence other than Kuklinski's confession. It's a compelling tale, certainly, and it matches the known facts, but there's no proof. So as far as believability goes, I'm giving this theory a 3 out of 10. I have to rate this one a little bit higher. Kuklinski likely murdered more people than he was accused of. I don't think all of his stories are true, but he makes himself seem like a professional. And he had some pretty creative ways to get rid of evidence and dead bodies. For that, I'll give this one a 5 out of 10. He's more than capable, and there's a confession. One thing is obvious. Many people had a vendetta against Jimmy Hoffa, particularly Tony Pro and Russell Bufalino. If anyone had the motivations and resources to quietly take care of the problem, it was the Italian mob. They may not have contracted the Iceman, but they could have cut deeper by pushing one of Jimmy's only friends to execute the hit. Coming up next, we'll look at Frank, the Irishman, Sheeran. Now back to the story. On July 30th, 1975, Jimmy Hoffa waited outside the Matches Red Fox restaurant for Tony Pro and Tony Jack to arrive. But according to I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt, Jimmy Hoffa was expecting a third person that day. Frank, the Irishman, Sheeran. Which brings us to our third and final conspiracy theory. Frank, the Irishman Sheeran, received orders from Russell Bufalino to kill Jimmy Hoffa. Towering at six foot four, Sheeran was an intimidating presence. At age 21, he enlisted in World War II. There, he got his first taste of the dark side, participating in revenge killings and mass executions. When Sharon returned to Pennsylvania, he worked as a truck driver. He got married, had kids, but he had a hard time supporting them, so he took up additional work as a nightclub bouncer, and he engaged in petty theft. In 1955, Sharon was on his usual trucking route when his vehicle broke down. By coincidence, Russell Bufalino saw him, pulled over, and helped repair it. From then on, Bufalino took Sheeran under his wing and hired him to act as muscle for the Sicilian mob. Bufalino got Sheeran back on his feet. He paid the Irishman well to intimidate enemies and make a few hits. He even connected Sheeran with Jimmy Hoffa so that Sheeran could join the Teamsters and secure his stake in the pension fund. Sheeran was a smart man who knew his place. He never asked questions. He knew when to keep his mouth shut, and he had a stomach for crime, which is why he was perfect for mob hits. Though there are rumors of other mafiosos killing Jimmy Hoffa, Sheeran's story in I Heard You Paint Houses is one of the most popular. It even inspired Martin Scorsese's 2019 film, The Irishman. 
According to Sheeran, Jimmy had gone mad just a few weeks before his disappearance. Jimmy was so desperate to regain his position as Teamsters Union president, he was willing to expose the mafia to the government. If he did this, it would hurt the mafia's access to the Teamster pension fund, which the mafia had been stealing from for years. They had taken billions to invest in their casinos in both Las Vegas, Nevada, and Havana, Cuba. Unfortunately, Jimmy made the mistake of confiding in Sheeran. Sheeran liked Jimmy, but Sheeran's loyalties were with Russell Bufalino. Sheeran and Bufalino tried to warn Jimmy not to follow through with his threats. He had to keep the mafia's secret, but Jimmy didn't listen. Something had to be done to keep him quiet. On July 29, 1975, a day before he disappeared, Jimmy Hoffa asked Frank Sheeran to join him at the meeting with Tony Pro and Tony Jack. Sheeran agreed to be there, but when he asked Bufalino for permission to attend the meeting, Bufalina told him to hang back. Sheeran knew Jimmy was in trouble. His fears were confirmed when Bufalino told Sheeran the plan. Sheeran would personally carry out the hit. On Wednesday, July 30th, 1975, Sheeran claims he and Bufalino got in the car with their wives and drove to Port Clinton, Ohio. They were all headed to Bufalino's daughter's wedding in Detroit. On the way, they stopped at a diner. The women had coffee, while Bufalino claimed they had a small errand to run. Sheeran would meet back up with them later that night. Bufalino drove Sheeran to a private airport where he boarded a small plane. In under an hour, he was in Michigan, where an empty car was waiting for him, keys in the ignition. Sheeran drove to a brown shingled, unoccupied home in the Detroit suburbs. When he walked in, Salvatore Brigulio and brothers Thomas and Stephen Andretta were waiting. Brigulio told Sheeran that Chucky O'Brien, Jimmy's foster son, was also joining them. But Chucky was running late, delivering freshwater salmon to a Teamster official. The problem was Chucky was driving Tony Jack's son's car, a Burgundy Mercury Marquis. According to Sheeran, they wanted to use this car for the hit because it was familiar to Jimmy. It's unclear why Sheeran felt this way, but it may be because Chucky borrowed the car often, and Chucky was one of the few people Jimmy felt he could trust. So if Jimmy saw a familiar car, he was more likely to get inside. When Chucky arrived, Brigulio and Sheeran got in the car. Chucky wasn't informed of the hit, but he was part of the plan. Jimmy wouldn't resist getting in the car if he saw Chucky there. Together, they drove to the Matches Red Fox restaurant and arrived around 2.45 p.m. Jimmy was calling his wife, Josephine, when they arrived. When Jimmy made his way back to his green Pontiac, Chucky pulled up beside him. Chucky apologized for being late, and Jimmy yelled at him, What are you even doing here? Brigulio informed Jimmy that he was an associate of Tony Pro's. Frustrated, Jimmy yelled that Tony Pro stood him up. Bystanders were staring, so Sheeran spoke up. He told Jimmy that Bufalino wanted to meet with him. 
Jimmy got in the car and continued arguing for the few miles back to the house. There, Jimmy and Sharon got out while Bergoglio and Chucky drove away in the Mercury Marquis. Jimmy walked up to the front door with Sharon following close behind. Jimmy opened the door to the empty living room. No Buffalino, no Mafia, no witnesses. Realizing he had left his gun in his Pontiac, Jimmy panicked and turned sharply, bumping into Sheeran. Jimmy tried to shove past Sheeran to get to the door, but he was unsuccessful. Sheeran shot Jimmy twice in the head. Sheeran dropped the gun on the floor, got in his car, and drove back to the airport. He boarded the private plane and flew back to Port Clinton, Ohio that night to rejoin Bufalino and his wife for the wedding. Sheeran says the Andretta brothers cleaned up the house and put Jimmy in a body bag. Buffalino told Sheeran they took Jimmy to a funeral parlor, but Sheeran never confirmed if that was the truth. Following a few anonymous tips, the FBI searched all the mafia-owned funeral parlors in Detroit for Jimmy's ashes. They found nothing, but they did find Jimmy's hair in the trunk of that Mercury marquee. However, according to Sheeran, Jimmy was never in the trunk. The FBI also searched the house where the hit supposedly took place. And while they did find blood, it didn't match Jimmy's. Still, this story gave the FBI enough to question nine men they believed were involved in the disappearance before a judge. They were Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano, Stephen and Thomas Andretta, Russell Buffalino, Salvatore and Gabriel Briguglio, Chucky O'Brien, Anthony Tony Jack Giacalone, and of course Frank, the Irishman, Sheeran. They were all represented by Jimmy's former attorney, Bill Buffalino. Every one of them pleaded the fifth. Sheeran even pleaded the fifth when asked if the prosecutor's yellow pen was yellow. Since the feds had no concrete evidence for a conviction, they offered immunity to anyone who came forward with information about Jimmy's death or otherwise. They wanted to put these men in prison for something, especially if they were going to get away with killing Jimmy Hoffa. In 1976, charges rolled in. Sal Bergoglio and Tony Pro were indicted with murder charges, while Tony Jack was convicted of tax fraud. Russell Buffalino was found guilty of extortion, and the Andretta brothers and Gabe Bergoglio were charged with labor racketeering, meaning they exploited union workers for profit. Then in 1982, 62-year-old Sheeran was found guilty of 11 instances of labor racketeering, he was sentenced to 32 years in prison. Jackie O'Brien was cleared of suspicion. By July 30th, 1982, the U.S. government finally declared Jimmy Hoffa dead. Most of those men remain suspects, and Jimmy's case remains open today. Sheeran's story is accepted by some as a confession. But others close to Jimmy, like his foster son, Chucky O'Brien, discredit Sheeran's account as a work of fiction. Chucky claimed that Sheeran was known to be a pathological liar and shouldn't be trusted. 
Jack Goldsmith, Chucky's stepson, claimed Sharon's story was by far the greatest depiction of a false charge against my stepfather. Goldsmith worked for years to clear his stepfather's name. But let's consider the source here. Perhaps Chucky, the one person who wasn't charged with the crime, is just trying to protect himself. Of course he's not going to admit to his involvement or say Sheeran's story is true. It's also important to note that Frank Sheeran denied involvement with Jimmy's murder for years. In 1995, Sheeran claimed that Salvatore Bergoglio had killed Jimmy Hoffa. He didn't confess anything until he wrote his book, which wasn't published until 2004, a year after he died. Either way, he lied at some point. Notably, an early publishing deal for I Heard You Paint Houses was thrown out. Sheeran was caught forging documents for the book, including a fake letter from Jimmy. The letter was supposedly from the 70s, but forensics determined it was written in the 90s and called it laughable forgery. It's clear Sheeran was capable of a lie. But the question is, was he doing it to protect himself and the men he was loyal to? Or was he just another person trying to make a buck off of the Jimmy Hoffa conspiracy? Due to the lack of evidence and the fact that most of the suspects are now dead, we'll have to form our own conclusion. Which is why we're giving this a 7 out of 10. Even if it wasn't Sheeran who pulled the trigger, the events described seem like a plausible final chapter in Jimmy Hoffa's life. Jimmy upset the mob, and the mob is, well, the mob. If someone was a threat, they took care of it. Sheeran happened to be one of their most loyal hitmen, and he was close to Jimmy Hoffa. I agree. The most plausible theory points to Frank Sheeran. But unfortunately, after 44 years of searching for Jimmy Hoffa's remains, there may never be a conclusive end to his story. His family may never get the closure they deserve. His body may never be found. His true story never told. But one thing's for certain. Karma caught up with the duplicitous union leader. If he'd kept his dealings with the mob, the federal government, and the Teamsters above board, he never would have gone to that final lunch at the Matches Red Fox restaurant. And as the old Sicilian proverb goes, to kill a dog, you don't cut off its tail. You cut off its head. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Of the many resources we used, we found I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt, In Hoffa's Shadow by Jack Goldsmith, and The Iceman by Philip Carlo, helpful to our research. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. 
Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Taylor Bright, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. (laughs) 